Well, thank you for the warm welcome. Thank you for having us here again. It was a pleasure to be with you a few weeks ago. I think it was last month. And I really enjoyed singing God's praises with you this morning. Um, really felt my heart filling with praise. Uh, the words were excellent. Uh, the music was really helpful as well. So thank you for everything. Uh, it's great to hear also about your passion for children's ministry. Um, really wonderful. I'm going to be looking at that, those resources that you're using, the mustard seed. So thank you for that. I wonder if you would open your Bibles with me to First Kings. 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to be zooming in on a few short verses that may appear to be insignificant sentences tacked on to the end of a really momentous part of Elijah's life and ministry. But it's a call. It's the call of Elisha. And this call and how Elisha responds to the call are closely tied to the future of Israel itself. There are some unusual events. There's an unusual bit of direct speech in the middle of these verses. But hopefully as we explore the text together, we'll see just how important it is, both for the people it was written to, and that includes us, and how important it was for Israel, and how important it is to respond to the call of God. But just for some context, we'll read in from verse 1 of the chapter. 1 Kings 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. Go down to verse 9 with me. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And Yahweh said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Ebel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. 
and the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there. This, by the way, is going to be the focus this morning from verse 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Thus reads God's word. We pray that he blesses it to our hearing and to our hearts. At school, I studied the famous J.B. Priestley play, An Inspector Calls. And that play begins with what the title suggests. There's a police inspector, and he calls at the home of a wealthy Burling family, and they've been celebrating an engagement. But this inspector's call rudely interrupts this engagement celebration because he's telling them the terrible news of a woman's suicide. And he investigates each member of that family. This joyous occasion has been dramatically interrupted. And so the tone of the whole play shifts really quickly at the start. The call was unexpected, it was sudden, and it proves to be life-changing for each member of that family, and the rest of the play reveals why. I'll not spoil it. But this morning we've read of another kind of call, a call from the Lord God Almighty upon the life of Elisha. We see that Elisha responded positively And the rest of his life changes significantly. Now, I recognize that 1 Kings is not the most popular book for many Christians. So you may be familiar with the story of Elijah, or maybe it's been a while since you've read it, or perhaps you've never done so. So allow me to just briefly remind us of the the situation before we look at Elijah's successor, Elisha. God's will for Elijah brought him to the darkest moment of his life. In fact, the text tells us that he was so distressed that he despaired of life itself, verses four and five that we read. But God was not finished with Elijah. He had demonstrated very clearly and very publicly his power. And there was this great showdown on Mount Carmel between Yahweh and all of the people's false gods these false gods that the people had made for themselves and they were worshiping. And then God showed his power in judgment very clearly in chapter 18 when the prophets of Baal are slaughtered. But now Elijah is fearful for his life. He's despondent and he's discouraged in chapter 19. But in verses 15 to 18, God promises Elijah two things that God will bring judgment on Israel through Hazael, Jehu, and Elisha. And secondly, in case Elijah thought that these were the only three faithful men left with him, God says this, 
I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Verse 10 and 14, Elijah told Yahweh that he's the only faithful one left. Not so. Jezebel's ruthless rampage throughout the land seemed to Elijah to be all-encompassing. But in one divine declaration, God dismissed the idea that she could do anything to thwart his plans. And so Elijah's just been struck with this mind-blowing news from God. The future plans of God for his people have been revealed to him unexpectedly. But the writer doesn't really tell us how Elijah felt. The writer moves on quickly to what happens next in God's plan. Because the focus in scripture generally, and certainly here, is never on the human characters. There's nothing here like in our reality TV shows that people love to watch, where it's all about, well, how did the human react to that? What was their response? How did they feel? We do get that, but it's not given prominence because the focus is about God's divine purposes worked out graciously through his people. Because we are just the human instruments that he's pleased to use. So we come to verse 16, and we're told that Elisha's home is in Abel Mehola. That's in the Jordan Valley, and that's right within Ahab's kingdom. So Elijah is being told, you're going to have to travel back into enemy territory, right into Jezebel's jurisdiction. And she's this cruel, evil figure who affirmed the false worship and hated God's prophets. At the start of chapter 19, she's sent this messenger of doom to tell Elijah that her whole goal in life is now to kill him. But God sends Elijah right back into the heart of her land, and because God instructed him to go, he obeyed. You see, Elijah may have given up on Israel, but their covenant-keeping God had not given up. The prophet of Yahweh was fed up, but the mercy of God and his loving kindness is never exhausted. We say amen to that in our own lives. God's answer to Elijah's complaint is the answer that God has given to our greatest complaint, which is our sinfulness. He answered with salvation. And I mean that literally because Elisha's name means my God saves or God is my salvation. God's salvation was the answer that Elijah needed, and it's the answer that we all need. So we come to verse 19, and we see that this call is sudden, first of all, and then we see the commitment of the servant. So firstly, the suddenness of the call, verse 19. Dale Ralph Davis said, Suddenness is the wrapping paper in which sovereignty sometimes arrives. Suddenness is the wrapping paper in which sovereignty sometimes arrives. It's suddenness, the suddenness of this call is seen more clearly if we try to put ourselves in Elisha's shoes for a moment. Now, if you're a farmer, if you've worked on a farm, you'll be able to do this a lot easier than myself. I've worked on a farm as often as I've been to the moon, which is never. But I get something of the suddenness of this call. Whenever I think about Elisha, waking up one morning, a morning like any other perhaps, and he's ready for a day's plowing in this picturesque uh, valley of Abel Melhola, which literally means the meadow of dancing. 
Sounds very joyful and pleasant. He's working with what is quite a common practice for this ancient farming technique. We're told that he has 11 teams of oxen. Um, They would have had their own plow and their own driver. He's working with them, and he's at the back with the 12th row. And as he's working, someone comes to his field, onto his land, and they're holding their coat. And then immediately, the course of Elisha's life changes forever. Because Elijah waits for the 12th row to pass by, and then he throws his cloak over the last man, Elisha. This seems like an unusual call in terms of how Elijah enacts it, but its suddenness shouldn't surprise us that much. God is always entitled to demand his people's service, is he not? Has he not bought us with the blood of his son and saved us for a purpose? Didn't Paul say to the church in Rome, on account of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul elsewhere describes Christians a few times as Christ's slaves. And so we must always live as servants of our master, being ready and prepared. Think of the army reservist who's waiting for that call up to service. And so we too should be willing and prepared to do whatever God commands, wherever he leads, whenever time pleases him. And when God calls you to service, it can be at the most unexpected time as it was with Elisha out farming. Amos was a herdsman as well, and yet he was called to pronounce judgment on King Jeroboam II. Moses was tending his father-in-law's flocks when God called him to send an entire people into safety, to lead them out of captivity. Or you could think of Matthew, who was collecting taxes for the Romans. Or you could think of Peter, James, and John, who were washing their nets, fishermen. Here, Elisha is plowing, and a garment is thrown over him. And this is a very strange thing, but it's a significant garment, because it's the one that covered Elijah's face when he encountered the Lord on Mount Horeb. And later, this same garment will be used by Elisha to strike the water and to split the banks of the Jordan in 2 Kings 2. Well, what does this all mean? Well, the transfer of the garment seems to signify the transmission of Elijah's mission to to Elisha, but also the ability to accomplish it. Perhaps we could think of it like the Olympic relay runner who passes the baton on to the next person. Their athlete is in the same race as them, but the section of their race is only completed whenever they pass on that baton to their teammate. Well, yes, that's all well and good, but if I threw my garment over you, never mind this garment, which was a a hairy garment, is what it's called, I would be surprised if you didn't at least exclaim something. What are you doing to me? Get this thing off me. That would be a normal response. But in Alicia's response, there's not even a hint of surprise. This, despite the fact that Elijah actually threw it over him and then passed by. It seems as though he didn't actually say anything at first. Now, maybe Elisha was familiar with Elijah's cloak. I don't know. But it's quite clear that he knew something of what this action meant for his life. He understood that he was being summoned to serve. 
And I think it speaks of readiness. Now, there's not that much recorded, but I don't think it's a stretch to say that Elisha was ready for this moment. Here's a farmer who's been working hard on his field, but he loved the Lord. Otherwise, Elijah would not have been sent to him specifically. Wherever you find yourself in life, are you prepared to leave what you know best and what you love, perhaps, if God was to lead you somewhere completely differently? Elisha was called suddenly, but he was ready and he was willing to go. So we see that the call is sudden. But I want to spend most of our time thinking about the commitment of the servant. If you look at verse 20 again, we read this, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? If at first you think that Elisha's answer sounds like reluctance or hesitation, look more carefully not just at what he says, but what he does. Some have said that verse 20 proves Elisha's willingness, even his eagerness to follow Elijah. I think it's a mistake to draw a parallel between this and what Jesus said in Luke 9. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the ploy and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. The only real similarity, I think, is the ploying language. Because Elisha was resolute in his break with his past. He boldly stood with Elijah and would follow, from, follow him. And you'll see how he serves him as an apprentice prophet. But the false disciples that Jesus was rebuking, they had a, a half-hearted heart at best. They appeared pious to others, but not to the Lord. So maybe a closer parallel would be seen in Luke 5, where we read, After this... Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. So here, Levi has already committed himself to leave his old way of life behind and to follow Jesus as Lord. And so he holds a banquet to, to demonstrate this. And this is similar to the feast that Elisha has. It also mentions in this passage this idea of kissing. He wants to kiss his mother and father. And interestingly, in First and Second Kings, originally one big volume, the only place that kissing is mentioned is here and in the same passage in verse 18. And that's where God declared that he has 7,000 faithful people who have not kissed Baal. Elisha is obviously one of these faithful men. The kiss that he requests is one of loving affection and gratitude for his mother and father. And it's also a kiss of farewell. And so I think it's important that we remember that whatever work we're involved in for God, whatever he's called us to, we must always be thankful for those who supported us. Elisha may never see his parents again. We don't know if he did. But we do know that he made significant sacrifices to serve the Lord faithfully. His hardships, if you look at Elisha's life, are quite interesting. 
There's a passage coming up pretty soon in Second Kings where youths mock him because he's bald, and they call him baldy. That's a small hardship, but it's an insult. But then in chapter 13, he actually contracts a terminal disease. This man suffered greatly for the Lord. And the question that Elijah asks him, what have I done to you? It's not necessarily a rebuke. In fact, it could be read as his way of telling Elisha that the call in his life is not from Elijah, but from Almighty God. In other words, people do not call you to serve. Elijah saying, I didn't call you. I just threw my cloak over you to designate you as the one that God has already chosen. This is God's calling on your life. So go get ready, say goodbye, but come back because I have not determined your future. God has. And in verse 21, we see that he returned from following him, took the yoke of oxen, sacrificed them, and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Well, what can we learn from Elisha's community barbecue here? I think there's quite a lot. It was not common for ordinary people to eat meat regularly, sometimes only a few times per year. So that tells us that for Elisha, this was a momentous occasion. This was a celebration and a sacrifice that cost Elisha something. He's ready to assist and learn from Elijah. But first he demonstrates his readiness because he says farewell to his community. And he also cooks this meat in a certain way. Notice that it says he, he cooks with the yokes of the oxen. This is a symbolic burning of his ties with the past, burning this plowing equipment to cook the meat. It's a decisive break. No longer, he's saying, will I serve in the fields with the oxen. Now I will serve whoever God calls me to in his strength. And he wouldn't be able to return when the going got tough because he just burned everything that he had. He had burned down these farming implements to demonstrate total commitment to God. No turning back. Now, this isn't prescriptive. It's not as if God's saying... In order to follow me and serve me, you have to burn down your homes if you're sent to another country, or you have to burn your fields if you've been involved in agriculture. But if God calls us to minister somewhere, in whatever format that ministry takes, we shouldn't forget what we're leaving behind. And I, and I think that's why he kisses his parents goodbye. And I can testify, as I'm sure you can, to the kindness and love that my church have shown me, that my parents have shown me, and, and others who have supported me whilst I've been training for ministry. And Alicia wants to remember all those things, but he also wants to demonstrate his full obedience and his total commitment to serving his Lord. His sacrifice seems like a, a thank offering for his call, and Perhaps his neighbors naturally wanted to join him to celebrate God's direction in his life. Now, he doesn't need to sever family ties, but he will have to make considerable sacrifices. And he mustn't allow, just as we mustn't allow, the things that we love on earth to hold us back from obedience. That Elisha was found plowing with 12 oxen implies that his family were quite 
prosperous, perhaps more financially successful than most people. But he seems to have no problem giving up what is a comfortable way of life to serve his creator and Lord. Hold on to nothing more than you hold on to God. Has he not given us his very best, his precious and only son to save us? So if he should call us to leave much behind, we remember that service to him is greater than all this world can offer. It's something that I certainly need to continue to learn. I think we all need to keep learning that. And only as we depend on the Holy Spirit can we learn to cling to him more than we cling to the world. The less we love material possessions, the more useful we can be to Christ as his disciples. And so we see this man as a committed servant. It says, then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. If you've ever watched The Apprentice on TV, either with Alan Sugar or the American one that used to have Donald Trump, you'll know that for them, a strong candidate must have certain characteristics. They must be self-motivated, experienced leaders, have a little bit of pride, be able to defend themselves, and to some degree, be quite ruthless. But this is the very opposite to the kind of apprentice that Elisha's called to be, and that we're called to be if we're servants of Christ. Elisha was motivated by the fear of God. He was humble, he was sacrificial, and he resolved to obey God alone, just like any child of God. Remember how the the first disciples were called in Luke 5. These were unknown, unimpressive fishermen with no experience in public speaking, in teaching, certainly not in leadership. But Jesus called them. Jesus, the second person of the divine trinity, called them. And he said, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. And we know what their response was. They pulled their boats up on shore. They left everything behind and they followed Christ. Elisha set out to follow Elijah and became his servant, or literally his aid. And that's the same word that was used to describe Joshua's relationship to Moses. And that's not a coincidence. Because Elijah's role in ministry were in many ways akin to Moses. In Numbers 27, verse 18, God said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit of leadership, and lay your hand on him. We're supposed to see the parallels here. Joshua had a miraculous crossing of the Jordan, which Elisha will have in 2 Kings 2. They both went to the place of Gilgal, Bethel, and Jericho. And Elijah will ascend in the same place where Moses died. Elijah and Elisha are like a a second pairing of Moses and Joshua because they're servants of God. Elisha was leaving behind an apparently lucrative farming occupation for a new vocation where he was guaranteed neither financial stability, good health, acceptance from the people he spoke to. He was not promised popularity or anything or anyone familiar to him. And as he kissed his parents goodbye, he's essentially kissing everything that he once held dear goodbye because he doesn't know what's gonna come next. That's the way it often is. But he would be Elijah's servant. And Elijah was God's servant. And so too was Elisha. And this is the crux 
of the entire episode that we've read. A servant of God ought to serve wherever, whenever, and in whatever capacity God calls them to. We should be motivated by love for God and grateful for the, for the way that he has called us because he's called us from our sins. The stories of faithful servants of God throughout church history often tell the stories of faithful men and women who were previously employed in various jobs with very different ideas about how their lives were going to turn out. God can affect very quick career changes, and he can call anyone of any age, from any background, to serve him. Now, we shouldn't respond to that call reluctantly, but as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a what? Of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now perhaps you're saying inwardly, I will not be anyone's servant. Who does this guy think he is telling me that I'm going to have to serve Jesus? Well, I'd like to respond firstly with the words of a great Bob Dylan song. It may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And then I'd explain what he meant. God's word's very clear on this. If you're living with no care for God's son and the sacrifice that he has made for sinful people like you and I, then you're living as an enemy of the cross. You're not free. You're in fact a slave to sin, Jesus said. But if you submit your life to Christ, and he is the Lord of your life, if you ask him to forgive you and and believe in him completely, Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. And that freedom is nothing less than a rebirth, a new life in Christ, free to serve a loving master, one who offers you the free gift of eternal life with him forever, and the tremendous blessing of living to serve him. We need look nowhere else than to him to learn how to serve best. He's our example. He's the one that we serve and we serve each other too in the church. If any of us are involved in regular ministry, our service is very visible. And so we should be looking to Jesus every day to keep us humble. But whatever kind of ministry you're involved in, because it's not limited to preaching and teaching the word, there are many more ways to serve. Sharing the hope that you have with your friends and family and neighbors. Praying for one another is service. Living in a Christ-like way before a depraved generation is service. As we come to a close, remember the political and cultural landscape that Elisha was serving in. Apostasy was rampant. Idolatry was mainstream. Evil leaders were powerful. Elijah thinks he's the only faithful servant of God left. He's depressed. But God revealed himself and and promised him he was not alone. 
And in verse 15, he commands him, go. He says, I have work for you to do. Get out of that cave and go and do the work. And we too have work to do. Many of our leaders are corrupt. Our culture is infected with all kinds of sexual depravity, and it's difficult to think how it could get any worse. The church is in decline across the world. There is a lot of work for us to do, but we don't go alone. We don't go on our own power, on our own initiative, or with our own authority. No, the one who promised to build his church and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it, he's the one who sends us. He's the one who empowers us, and it's his authority that we go under. The history of the church is a a history of ordinary men and women whom God called to serve him. Sometimes in a powerful, really obvious way. You think of men like Martin Luther. But oftentimes, he calls us to quiet, behind-the-scenes work, prompting us to leave something behind, to sacrifice something for him, to serve a small, maybe a small local church, maybe a bigger church, to serve Maybe God's call to service for you means spending more time in prayer for your brothers and sisters in Christ, here and across the planet, like we were praying for earlier. Because it doesn't matter how dramatic or how sudden God's call on our lives is. The thing that matters most is our readiness and our willingness to answer and to go. Mentioned Luther there. During one of the the darkest portions of his life, he wrote these words. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Elijah knew that ancient foe very well. We will know his cruel hate too, as he tries to hinder our service. But that hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, continued. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Opposition to God's work is inevitable. But the help of God is guaranteed. If God's calling you, acknowledge that as a privilege. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We all have the same great commission to obey. And the right man is on our side, and he will win the battle. May all that we do to serve God bring glory to his thrice holy name. Recognize that God always provides what's needed to fulfill the calling on your life. Go in confidence not in yourself, but in the all-powerful Lord who leads you. Go in faith and go for his glory alone. Amen. We're going to take the time to sing our closing hymn, which is Hear the Call of the Kingdom.